We understand and applaud when a soldier risks his life for his comrades and for his country. What about when a soldier of Christ risks his or her life for the sake of the gospel? As our study leader, Dave Wardson, moves towards the close of Dr. Luke's history of the early church, born in Jerusalem in Acts 2, he shows us Paul, like his Savior, determined to get to Jerusalem. The sun had not yet risen when Captain Will Swenson and his men made their way into an Afghan village. That's when it happened. We start receiving fire. An ambush. Pinned down, Swenson returned fire for 90 minutes. His men hit. Sergeant First Class Kenneth Westbrook, bleeding from the neck, losing consciousness, bullets biting all around him. The enemy now so close, they called out for the Americans to surrender. Swenson ran to Westbrook, lobbing a grenade and carrying him the length of two football fields. A helmet cam captured the moments. That is Swenson, his helmet off, risking his life by being out in the open, using an orange tarp to guide the helicopter in. He helps Westbrook onto the helicopter, making sure he is secured. And then this, watch, so quickly, so instinctively, Swenson gives Westbrook a tender kiss on his brow before racing back to the battle where he would help rescue others. I wanted to convey to him that I was proud of him and that his fight was over. That was an act that shows that bond that every soldier, every sailor, every airman and every Marine has with their fellow service member. The man Swenson helped to that helicopter would eventually die, but at the White House today, his family and the families of the others Captain Swenson tried to help were there to honor him, a soldier who risked everything for his brothers. Martha Raditz, ABC News, Washington. One of the things I hear a lot from my students on Monday night is all things are relative, everything is relative. If that's true, then all things are relative. Then let's suppose that Captain Swenson, when he came under fire, would have put his rifle, thrown it on the ground, and turned tail and run. What would you think of that? Would that be okay? Should he get a Medal of Honor for that? Why not? Everything's relative. There isn't any difference between what you just saw a captain in the army do, and he actually went and rescued four of his buddies. He rescued eight Afghan soldiers that were fighting with him. He rescued an Afghan interpreter. The man that he put in the helicopter actually died uh, later on, but he still risked his life even for those that had fallen because we won't leave anybody behind. And all of you instinctively know deep in your soul that man should be rewarded, but if he would have turned tail and run, then he should be cursed. And every one of you know that deep in your soul, which means that every one of you don't believe all things are relative. Hardly anyone does. You see, we know there's a difference, and we also realize that whatever your belief is about Afghanistan, we really believe that soldiers that swear allegiance to defend us, that they should be willing to give their life for their comrades and for their mission. You agree with that? Okay, so if that's so in the military... What about the body of Christ? I want to talk to you today as we look at Acts and pick up the story in Acts. We're going to look at not a captain like Swenson that got the Medal of Honor, but I want to talk to you about a believer that deserves a Medal of Honor. 
And I want to try to lift up your passion and your vision because what's going to make you alive is what you just saw Captain Swinton say. It says, all of you know that when you're in a battle and you draw close together, that there's a, there's a unity, there's a love, there's a togetherness, there's a friendship that will last for a lifetime. Well, I want you to realize that your unity, your bond in Christ is even more powerful than that. As you open up to Acts chapter 21 today, we're going to pick up the story moving towards the end of the book of Acts. And it's going to be a journey story. The Apostle Paul has just said goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. And you need to go back and review that. If you missed it, you can check it out on Truth Encounter. You really need to hear about Paul's farewell address because it reminds us about the basics that all of you in this room need to be willing to live and die for. He talked about the need to give your whole life for the gospel of grace. The key verse we studied last week is, I count my life of nothing. I count my life worth nothing, except that I might finish my course, that I might complete the mission, and the mission is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now the Apostle Paul is really going to put that into action. He said that at Miletus, which is on the west coast of what's now modern-day Turkey. Now, as we begin our passage, he's going to be sailing in a boat. So all of you that are good sailors, you might want to go later on this afternoon. You can look on the Internet and see him going down south, sailing. He's going to go past the island of Cyprus. Then he's going to land at the city of Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, which was a major city, big commercial city. And we're going to see how the gospel had penetrated that city. He's going to come down to Ptolemaeus, and then he's going to come to Caesarea. And Caesarea is on the coast. It's the big city in first century Israel. And he's going to go up from Caesarea into Jerusalem. And that's where most of the events are going to take place for the rest of the book of Acts. And then eventually we're going to get to Rome. So look at the travel narrative. How many of you have ever gone and watched slides of somebody that went on a trip? Anybody ever done that? Well, this is your opportunity to do it with the Apostle Paul, and in his day, they didn't have slides, so you have to kind of listen to the narrative and picture it in your mind. Look what it says in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. When he had parted from them, that's when he had parted from the elders of the Ephesian church of Miletus, he set sail, and he says, we took a straight course to Kos. So those of you that are sailors know, well, they had the wind at the right position so they could take a straight course out to Kos. The next day they came to Rhodes, which is an island in the Mediterranean. From there they came to Pater, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, and so they need to go from west to east, they found a ship that was going to Phoenicia, and that's modern-day Lebanon, and then Syria's a little bit farther, so you get your bearings geographically. We went aboard, and when we had come inside of Cyprus, so you can almost feel the Apostle Paul, you know, looking off his shoulder. There's the island of Cyprus, and you can look on your Google map, and you can actually see pictures of Cyprus. And he says, leaving it on the left, so they're sailing to the south of Cyprus. They look to the left, and now they're heading towards Syria. They landed at Tyre, and from there the ship was unloading its cargo. So the, all of you that are in business, all of you that are in commerce, notice that the Bible, the great apostle Paul and Dr. Luke, as he's describing the story, say, hey, we needed to unload all these goods. That's how the apostle Paul got from one place to the next. So the Lord wants to use it. Just a little aside there, but the Lord in his holy word is including you. If you're a sailor and you unload ships and stuff, that's part of our existence in this planet right now. So they unloaded the ship, they unloaded the cargo, and having sought out the disciples, I want you to see that, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. 
one of the things that we need to pray the Holy Spirit will recapture is we need to learn to have a passionate love for one another as brothers and sisters. Believers in not just in our church, but in other churches. As an American group of believers, we don't seek out disciples. You see, we're into our gadgets. We're into our individualism. I just want to share with you, I've done two weddings the last three weeks or so. And those couples all met in very close circles. What happens is you've got college kids that start, you know, partying. They start having a good time, and they start connecting, and they develop bonds. And while they're going through school, and then later when they get their jobs, they keep those bonds going. Last night, I married a couple that had big swim parties, and they played backyard volleyball, and they grilled lots of meat. That's where connection takes place, y'all. That's where connection takes place in our society. You need to seek out fellow believers, and I would encourage some of you, the Lord wants you to connect. There's friendships, like Mary and I have friendships with some of you that have lasted a whole lifetime. We need to continue those friendships, but we also need to reach out to new people. As you're thinking and planning, how do I connect with other people? You find people that you really love in the Lord, and then you develop ways. You have them in your home. You have them for backyard parties. Those of you, like if you're in a certain age group, that, that means that there's certain things you like to do. Like if you have grandkids, then you do things with your grandkids. We need to get all of that relationship going again. Church isn't just coming to have a big theater show, is what I talked to you about the last time we were together. Church this morning should be the place that we just come together because we're seeking out disciples. We want to get encouraged by those that follow Jesus so that we can go out and use all the relationships. You use backyard grilling. That's where you can reach your friends. Your friends won't come to hear me teach the Bible, but they will come to have a really good hamburger. And that's where it needs to begin. The church family needs to have a balance between outreach in connecting with unbelievers? How many of you have some unbelieving friends? Anybody work with unbelieving friends? Okay, most of your unbelieving friends aren't going to come to gather with us because we have really great music. They can put earplugs in their ears and hear great music. They're not going to come to hear great speakers. You can just turn on the TV and hear great speakers. You can go on YouTube, go around the world. You can hear speakers from all over the world. We're going to reach this next generation relationally. They're hungry for friendship. They're hungry for relationships. So I want you to pray that the Spirit of God will stir us that we will connect together as brothers and sisters. When we started 40 years ago at Bill Midlothian Bible Church, we were together. We met in each other's homes. We ate together. Billy Holloman's sitting back there. The first time I met Ace and Billy, we had a big party, a celebration at their home, and it was a church. It was eight families, and we just sang together, and we ate together, and we sat in couches together. What the Lord wants you to do is you just multiply that as you grow. You just start having lots of living rooms with lots of people all over the place. In DeSoto, in Duncanville, in Mansfield, you have a lot of people that are meeting in homes. The Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he sought out believers. And that's how they reached the world for Jesus. Unbelievers said, man, these guys really care for each other. They have brother and sister relationships with people that aren't their brothers and sisters. The Roman Greek world couldn't ever get over that. So again, I want you to see how Dr. Luke is painting this picture. The Apostle Paul, everywhere he goes, he seeks out believers. My dad's home with the Lord now. One of the greatest legacies that my dad had really laid in my life. My dad traveled all over the world. He would go, like, where Corby's going up in Ohio, 
My dad has tons of friends in Columbus, hundreds of friends in Columbus. You say, well, Dave, how did your dad do it? If I went to Columbus today, I could just call a few friends, and I've got 50 people that know my dad. How did he do that? Because everywhere my dad went, he had a list of people. He used to put them on napkins and shove them in his pocket with red pens that would dribble all over the napkin. And he'd call 50 people. When we were early married, my dad would come to our house, and he would say, hey, i got to use your phone for a minute. I get a $200 telephone bill. But in those days, that was, a big, that was a big tithe for us because my dad would call everyone. He was always relating. He was always seeking believers. Are you? Am I? Very important. Let's pray this one of the Holy Spirit to rekindle that seeking out of disciples. What a disciple is is not the 12 original apostles that are in Da Vinci's painting. You're the disciple. How many of you are following Jesus today? You're a disciple. That's what it means to be a disciple. How many of you like to get together with other people that are following Jesus? If you say, well, I'm not sure I really like that, try it. Because I want to tell you, I came here in 1971 in Dallas area. The people that I sought out that followed Jesus, they're the most precious people in all the world. That's really important. Like last night, I got to be with a lot of those that I started following Jesus with, and we married another one of the younger people that grew up in our church, and now the cycle. And as I go around the tables, there's all these people that we follow Jesus together. I covet that. Those of you that are younger, it's going to be really important. We need to be allowing the Spirit to help us to recreate that again. And the Lord will bring natural relationships to you. Every city the Apostle Paul goes, he connects with the disciples. He spends seven days with them. He didn't just stay in a hotel. He didn't just stay distant. Christian leaders that are distant aren't building the body of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. And then he says this. He says, having sort of the disciples, he stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, now we're introduced to the tension in the story. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So we're introduced to Jerusalem. When the days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the beach. And they knelt down in the sand, and they prayed. Now, how do you think that affected people on the beach? I guarantee you, there was unbelievers on the beach. There, what are these crazy people kneeling down? And they're all crying and everything, and they love this old guy. What's going on? That's what reaches people for Jesus. You say, well, how did the early church conquer the Roman Empire? That's how they did it. Genuine, authentic relationships. Do you kneel down? That relates to Corby and Kerry going up to Ohio. You got to say goodbye relationships. Don't back away from those things. Cry. Express the problem that you feel about change, but also realize that until Jesus comes back, we need to keep going out. There's thousands of students at Ohio State that need Jesus. You could watch on ESPN yesterday. If you think Texas A&M fans are rabid fans, you haven't heard anything yet. And when there's thousands of students that Corby and Kerry can use their gift, and that church can explode even more, We've only just begun to reach out. And that's the passion we want to have. That's what's going to give life. That's what gives life. The Apostle Paul, they were genuine. They loved each other. They got down on their knees and they said goodbye to one another. But there's this tension. Why in the world are you going to Jerusalem? So look what it says. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, he came to Ptolemaeus. We were greeted by the brothers and sisters that were there. 
And we stayed with them only one day because Paul's rushing to get to Caesarea. The next day he departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. So Luke reminds you that Philip was one of those. Remember when there was a big problem in the church? I want to show you how you need to make connections. Remember when the church was fighting about the widows? The Hebrew-speaking widows were getting their food, but the Greek-speaking widows weren't. Remember that? Anybody had trouble in church over food? Anybody had trouble in church over women that were neglected? So don't quit in the church because there's a great big fight over we're not really meeting someone's needs. Don't get angry about that. Solve it. You choose seven gifted people. They chose seven Greek-speaking guys, which is crazy. Like, I would have got seven Greek-speaking women. They would have taken care of it quicker. But the Lord wants emphasized, just like the family, we need to get these guys going. We need to get them to assume responsibility. That needs to take place in our church family. Don't ever forget it. You ladies, keep pushing those guys. In the long run, it'll be good. And in this case, it was really good because Philip became a great evangelist. I don't have time this morning, but you should be, if you're reading Acts 1 to the end, what did the Lord call Philip from choosing tables? What did he start doing? He started telling people about Jesus. He had a mighty revival up in Samaria. Right in the middle of the revival, do you remember what the Lord called him to do? He said, I want you to leave Samaria. And the Lord took him down to Gaza, and he made him race a chariot. I don't think the chariot was going very fast. And we came up along the Ethiopian eunuch, who happened to be reading the book of Isaiah. And by the way, I want to really challenge you. Like when I talk to younger students, they know every detail of Star Wars. So don't tell me they're so dumb. They can never learn the Bible. We can't do this anymore. Hey. It's all what you're interested in. My own kids, they can quote all the movies they watched when they were teenagers, every line of them. Can you do that? And that's what we need to do with the Bible. Like what I'm doing with you now is I'm tracking you this story. When Dr. Luke mentions Philip, he wants you to track. Hey, he was the original deacon. The Lord made him an evangelist in Samaria. Man, he was the one that opened the gospel to Ethiopia. Ever hear of Coptic Christians? They're being persecuted right now. They go right back to Philip. He started that. Because the Ethiopian eunuch went back and there was a great spread of the gospel. And your newscasts today relate to that. Isn't that exciting? So you're in the middle of the story. This is a little side. And I want you to see that sometimes in a good story, everything isn't just like an engineering program. So he happens to mention that he has four virgin daughters. So if you're an older woman today and you're single and you're still a virgin, and we make films, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and how horrible that is? That isn't horrible in God's Word. If you're single, and the Lord has called you to be single, these four daughters were prophets in the New Testament church, which meant that the Spirit of God used them to exhort others and to encourage others. They were powerfully being used. Luke doesn't tell us much about it, but I can see them teaching Bible studies all over the place and touching lives. And we've had other stories like Dorcas and other women. The woman that Phoebe takes the book of Romans and and Paul gives her the book and she takes it. So if you're a single lady, I want you to know that in the story, God's story of redemption, you have a really special part to play. And so we could put together this story all the way through the New Testament, then get into church history of how the Lord has used single virgin women to powerfully comfort, to powerfully exhort, to powerfully build the body of Christ. Amen? And that's what I want to teach you to do. I want you to read the story. I don't want you just to read little bits. I want you to feel what Dr. Luke is teaching you. 
He's emphasizing that it was awesome for Paul to stay in the home. And when he mentions these four prophets that were virgins, he's insinuating that they brought great support, just like Mary and Martha really helped Jesus in his ministry. That's another story that tells you about women that are ministering to those that are ministering the word of God. And that's what it helps us. It's because the church didn't follow the story that they abused women at times. And culture continues to abuse women. You see how powerful it is to understand the story. But as the story develops, they're all uptight. The tension about Paul going to Jerusalem continues. Notice what it says. It says that while we were staying there for many days, a prophet came up named Agabus. He came from Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Dr. Luke just told you the plot line of the rest of the book of Acts. Now, I'll give away the story. I've ruined the tension, which is not good storytelling, but I want to teach you how to do this, okay? Dr. Luke just foretold the story. For the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's going to go to Jerusalem. Guess what's going to happen? Is there any possibility that Paul could be bound? So he's going to be bound and imprisoned, okay? Is he going to die in Jerusalem? No, because he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles And what's the capital city of the Gentiles? So he's going to get to Rome. How many think God's in control? Now, if you're Paul, you can say, well, boy, there's no big problem. Man, we're going to have exciting stories. Paul's going to be almost killed by a Jerusalem mob. We're going to have to rush him away in the middle of the night so he's protected from these 40 guys that swear I'm not going to eat anything till I kill him. Man, if your kids want great stories, this is exciting. Paul's dashing away with a whole bunch of Roman horsemen and taking to Caesarea. If you think politics is bad now, you're going to have the, just a, a lawyer that just butters everyone up and accuses Paul. And then we're going to have Paul give his testimony. Then we're going to have Paul, they want him to bribe him, he's not going to go, and eventually the Lord puts him on a ship as a prisoner, and he makes the Roman Empire pay the bill to bring his apostle to tell the gospel of grace to Nero, the Roman emperor. That's an awesome story. And Dr. Luke just told you the beginning of that story, and Agabus is saying, and you would think as you read the story, and when you're telling the story to your kids, you want to say, well, man, should Paul go or not? How many think Paul should go to Jerusalem? How many think he shouldn't? You all sit here piously, oh yeah, you should go, because David just told us the rest of the story. If you were Paul and you're sitting in church service and a prophet comes in and says, hey, you know, he takes your belt off and ties up his hand and his feet and says, hey, you're going to be like that. I think I might say, man, I don't think I'm going to Jerusalem. And that's a big tension in the text. It's challenging. Should I risk my life for the gospel? What about if all my friends say, hey, I shouldn't do this? Should I still risk my life for the gospel? Dr. Luke is challenging to think. If that captain, the day before they face that battle, a friend comes in and says, hey, I don't think you should go and fight today. I think you need to go just abandon your team. Because tomorrow you go into a valley, and man, it's really dangerous in that valley. I don't think you should go. So the captain goes to his commanding officer and says, I'm sorry, you commanded us to go with these Afghan soldiers. I ain't going. Because there's a good possibility I could get killed. You see how different, how many of you that are soldiers think, oh yeah, that would go over really well. Why do we do it with the cause of Christ? And that's what makes it suddenly come alive. You guys have the greatest cause. I have the greatest cause. And the tension in the story, all of Paul's friends, including a prophet, is saying, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get killed there. And Paul says, and this is the key of the passage. Notice what Paul said. He says, would you all stop crying? 
Paul answered, look at verse 13. What are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready to listen to you. I'm ready to be comforted by you. I will stay right here in Caesarea. In fact, I'm going to get on the ship and go back to the Gentile mission. Is that what Paul said? No, Paul says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned. So Agabus, this is a powerful, symbolic story. But I want you to know, you can bind me. You can even kill me because I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased trying to get him not to go. And they said, I can just see him. They go, how many of you have ever been much of believe They go, oh, the will of God be done. I just love it. I can just see the believers go, well, I guess the will of God be done. But the will of God will be done. You believe that today? Our church is in the midst of change. And some of you are worried about it. Stop being worried. The will of God be done. Man, when Paul was in Caesarea, the leading teacher, the leading shepherd of the first century church is saying, hey, I could lose my life. Why do people do that? Because soldiers know there's things that are worth dying for. The American church has lost its sense. Like when churches are all worried about the form of their worship and they're all worried about whether the seats are comfortable and they're all worried about what flavor the coffee is, they're a long way away from soldiers. I got news for you. Like when I was hiking the Adirondacks with an 80-pound pack on my back, it wasn't comfortable. And man, when you do that like six hours straight, And you say, Lord, if I see another rock, I'm going to cuss. But you know what? I would do it all over again. The challenge. But most of all, just being with my boys. Because that's what life's about. And what made it even more fun is, hey, that trail the next day up over the ascent was really hard. The journey was really hard. But there's nothing like When you went to the summit, you're together. You're a band of fathers and brothers. That's what Paul understands. Do we understand that? The apostle Paul is saying, we got to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's really important. And what I want to whet your appetite for is say, Dave, what's the big deal about Jerusalem? Well, I'm not going to start with Melchizedek, but what I want to whet your appetite for, one of the major gifts that I want to give to you as a pastor teacher is if you skip all over the Bible, you're never going to understand why Paul went to Jerusalem. The story of Jerusalem actually starts with the Melchizedek story. He's the king of a city called Peace. That's way back in the book of Genesis. But I'm going to just tell you the story just as we close. I'll sketch it out for you. And what I want you to learn to do, Acts is actually two volumes of the same work. So if you want to understand why the apostle Paul needs to go to Jerusalem, you need to go back to the beginning of Luke. And you need to understand what Dr. Luke tells you about Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a really important city. It's the city of King David. That's the city where the prophets in the Old Testament die. That's the city where the Messiah had to walk through the gates into the temple. That's the city that Dr. Luke starts out with, like Anna and Simeon, they're two old couples. So if you're old... And you say, well, the Lord's done with me. In the body of Christ, you don't retire. You keep charging. My dad, the month before he died, the last conscious moment that he had on a Saturday night, he was preaching like I'm preaching right now. He was challenging hundreds of students. you got to give your life for the gospel. The greatest days for you all and for all of us are ahead. 
And it can mean going to Jerusalem. But Anna and Simeon were an older couple. And the Lord made them wait their entire lifetime. But the Lord promised Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And when Jesus came to be circumcised on the eighth day, Simeon saw Mary with baby Jesus. And the Holy Spirit in Simeon said, you saw the Messiah. And Simeon got to hold the Messiah. And Anna, who had been a widow, like Philip's daughters, she'd been a widow and she'd been a single lady serving the temple. She got to see the Messiah. That's how that story in Luke begins. Then when he's 12 years old, only book that tells you about it. When Jesus is 12, what city does he go to? He goes up to Jerusalem. Remember he gets lost? doesn't really get lost. His parents get lost. He knows exactly where he is. He's in his father's house. And he wows all the Jerusalem leaders. That's important. Even as a 12-year-old, the Holy Spirit's reaching out to the Jewish leaders. So if you think that it's Christianity and Judaism, that's wrong. My whole movement that I believe in had a 12-year-old Messiah that was already interacting with the scribal leaders of the first century and wowing them with his wisdom. When Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan, this great serpent, that's the great advertiser, takes him to the pinnacle of the, and says, throw yourself down, prove yourself that you're the son of God. Where is the temple? Tell me real loud. And Jesus says, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going the easy way. We're not going to wow you with power. We're going to wow you with sacrifice and servanthood. And we're not following you, Satan. I'm going to be obedient. Right in the middle of the book of Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. When I go to Jerusalem, I will be handed over to the scribes and the elders, and I will die. And the third day I will rise again from the dead. As you're studying the book of Luke, suddenly you'll be on a travel narrative with Jesus toward Jerusalem. The week before Jesus was crucified on the Palm Sunday, all of Jerusalem says, Hosanna to the Son of David. And then on Friday... They're cursing him on a cross. In that week, Jesus predicts this city is going to be attacked by the Gentiles. This temple will be torn down. And you're going to be scattered. He says, I would have gathered this city like a hen gathers her chicks. I would have gathered you in because I have a passion for this city. I love my people. But you wouldn't have any of it. Incredible story. So in 70 AD, the Romans came down. The temple was destroyed. Jews were scattered all over the place. And they were the wandering Jews until 1948. And now the story is beginning to heat up again. That's what I want you to understand. It all happened in Jerusalem. Then Jesus rose again from the dead, ministered to his disciples, and when he ascended to heaven just before he did, he said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time to place, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. See how Luke is weaving the story? Where did they make the big decision about whether it was circumcision or grace, whether it was Judaism or this new free gift in Acts 15 in Jerusalem? So you know what the Holy Spirit's telling you as we close this message today? The Holy Spirit's saying, your heavenly daddy will give you a chance again and again and again and again. We're going to have the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem with the very Jewish high priest that crucified Jesus. Again, 
Paul's going to tell him. He's going to give his testimony to that very crowd and try to reach them for Jesus. You talk about persistence. And what I want you to catch a vision of is you live in a culture where everybody thinks it's culturally Christian, culturally Jewish, culturally Islam. I don't want to have anything to do with any of those cultures. Because in the name of those cultures, terrible things have happened. My Savior is Jewish. And he is the prophet that's greater than Moses. He is the one that can bring peace to Jerusalem. And I want you, like Paul, to say, hey, I'm following Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. And if it means it cost me my life, I'm ready. You think that's pretend? Young men in our church, one of our young men, lived in the Middle East, very close to me, and his life was on the line again and again and again. We've cried together when he talked to me about some of the young men that received Jesus and how their life was threatened by their family. What do you say to someone? I want to ask you today. A lot of you are in a culture would say, man, you should never do that because they have their way and we have our way and everyone will just get along because everything is relative. Well, I got news for you. That's not the story of the book of Acts. There's only one Savior that's worth dying for. Because he's the Savior. If you die, you'll be resurrected to life forever and ever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'd ask you that you would continue to raise up men and women that'll be willing to risk their lives like Paul, that they won't do it foolishly, but they will be willing to do it purposely, just like a good soldier. I'd ask you, Lord, that your spirit would breathe relationship, that we would be seeking out one another as brothers and sisters, that we would be like Paul, that everywhere we go, we would connect with disciples. And I'd ask you, Lord Jesus, that like Paul, that we'll be willing to face the hard challenges, that we won't quit because someone predicts that there might be some really hard times ahead. Help us to realize that the real excitement in life is to climb the hard places, to take on the hard tasks. See your Holy Spirit powerfully work. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to protect Paul in Jerusalem, that you are going to take him to Rome, and at the end of the book of Acts, the gospel is going to be going out with great boldness. And Lord, my prayer is that we use this morning's message from Acts 21 to help the gospel to keep going forth from my own life, from my brothers and sisters, and that we're going to see incredible ways to communicate the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.